0: I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID, to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways.
1: Members of the committee, my name is Anita F. Hill, and I'm a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma.
0: For many Americans, Anita Hill is best known for the landmark testimony that she delivered during the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court confirmation hearings in 1991.
1: After approximately three months of working there, he asked me to go out socially with him. What happened next and telling the world about it are the two most difficult things, experiences of my life.
0: As one of the people on Anita Hill's legal team, I got a chance to witness her courage firsthand, watching on as she sat in front of that Judiciary Committee, and a whole nation who vilified, demeaned, and otherwise ripped her apart for sharing her experience of sexual harassment. It was the worst example of the ways in which women are the ones who are put on trial when they dare to come forward and think that their testimony matters.
2: The issue of fantasy
0: has arisen. It was suggested by Republicans that she might simply be fantasizing about men who were interested in her. They even came up with someone who was willing to diagnose her as suffering from erotomania. Ever read this book, The Exorcist? Orrin Hatch waved a copy of The Exorcist, accusing her of stealing her testimony directly from the book.
3: Can you tell the committee what was the most embarrassing
1: of all the incidences that you have alleged?
0: I'll never forget the incendiary questions that she was asked again and again that weren't designed to get to the truth, but were designed to humiliate and to demean her. It was almost as if. They were trying to create pornography by having her retell what happened to her over and over again.
2: X-rated and extraordinary. That's the way it's been all day long, with millions glued to their television sets as senators scrutinized the sexual harassment charges against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas, the most sensational hearing since Watergate.
0: And then I'll never forget how Joe Biden as chair of the Judiciary Committee, made a fatal decision.
3: There's been a major behind-the-scenes battle over whether Angela Wright,
0: who came to Washington today under subpoena to testify against Thomas, will really appear before the committee. He decided not to allow the corroborating testifiers, who had also experienced sexual harassment, to come forward. The former EEOC press chief, now an editor at the Charlotte Observer, claims Thomas pressured her for dates and asked her explicit personal questions. Most people to this day don't even know that there were four other women who were prepared to testify against Thomas. To underscore the fact that these testifiers weren't valued and that their stories didn't really matter, their testimony was read into the record at 2.30 in the morning long past the time that most people were paying attention, long past the time that any significant development in the case was likely to happen. So when Anita came forward, millions of people debated whether or not she was worthy of being believed. Her experience was treated as a mere hypothetical, even by those within our own community. And the white feminists who had rallied to Anita's cause? Most of them treated the racial backdrop of the hearing as just noise. And in doing so, they missed a real opportunity to create a more nuanced understanding of sexual harassment. The fact that the early legal battles were disproportionately fought by black women. Pamela Price and Sandra Bundy and Michelle Vincent. These are women that helped create the laws that protect against sexual harassment. So the irony is that in this moment of great awakening around sexual harassment, race was politely ushered off stage. In the three decades since Anita spoke her truth on the national stage, high profile instances of sexual harassment and assault have factored into two presidential elections, another Supreme Court nomination, and have led to a reckoning in the entertainment industry and beyond. So it's fair to say a considerable degree of contemporary political and social culture can be linked in one way or another to that seismic moment in American history. Today, to mark the 30 years since Anita Hill testified and two weeks since the release of her latest book, Believing, our 30-year journey to end gender violence, we're gonna revisit the Clarence Thomas hearings and reflect on where we were then and where we are now. I had the occasion recently to reminisce with Anita. This episode will include excerpts from that conversation where we captured those days 30 years ago, but also talked about contemporary issues. It was an absolute joy to connect the dots with Anita, a scholar, lawyer, and an author, but most importantly, someone whose courage has now inspired generations of Americans. So in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by a very special co-host, my co-founder of the African American Policy Forum, Luke Charles Harris. In addition to marking 30 years since the Clarence Thomas hearings, 2021 also marks 25 years since the African American Policy Forum was first founded. Now, I think most people might not be aware that there's any correlation at all between the Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill hearings and AAPF's birth, but there certainly is. When the hearings actually happened, we asked black men to show up and reveal the lie of Thomas's false equivalence that said a black woman standing up for herself meant the betrayal and disregard of black men everywhere. Of all the African-American men that were invited to Washington, D.C., only two showed up. Luke Charles Harris was one of them. So take us back. Let's walk down memory lane a little bit. I remember when I was in the hotel room, I think it was after... Uh, the first day of testimony, and I opened the door, and there, there you were, you and you and Carlton Long, dressed up, suits and ties with briefcases. It was after we had put out a call to have uh, African American male voices show up. This was after Clarence Thomas denounced. Anita Hill's testimony as a high-tech lynching designed to send a message to African-American men, which is why it was so important to have African-American men come down to Washington, D.C. So tell me how you heard the call and why you jumped on a train, plane. I don't know, Bill. I don't know how you got there. What made you come down?
2: Well, you know, I had been watching the appointment process for some time. And, you know, I had serious reservations about Clarence. I mean, Clarence was the year ahead of me at, at Yale Law School. I, I knew him to be an acolyte of Robert Bork. Uh, Robert Bork was the most conservative member, by far, of the Yale Law School faculty. Uh, he was nominated to the Supreme Court. And uh, the black community uh, almost uniformly opposed you know, his appointment to the Supreme Court. And so I'm watching America consider one of the few black students at Yale that actually saw themselves as an acolyte of the most conservative member of the faculty, uh, watching the way in which he stood fast in opposition to the history of the civil rights movement, so I had serious reservations about him, going back to what he was like in law school, because, by the way, yeah, everybody knew at the law school, I didn't know Clarence well. I had lunch with him sometimes. But everybody, including some people that I know that were close friends of his, who wouldn't come out against him publicly, but they said to me privately, oh, I knew it might be trouble when they started talking about porn, because Clarence was always talking about porn in the law school right so you know these things that were associated with him from porn to the politics were well known but there was something in the african american community and I, and i want to call it patriarchy right that focused our attention on him as a black man and what that would mean rather than him as a black man with a certain kind of politics that are actually obscene
0: so look just to give people a sense of this moment when thurgood marshall retired he left a message about what to look out for with the nominee. What what was it that he said that was kind of the
2: signal to everybody to look out? Yeah, well, it was hard to miss. You know, he, he says, look, rattlesnakes bite, and it doesn't matter if they're Black.
1: Do you think President Bush has any kind of an obligation to name a minority candidate for your job?
2: I don't think that that should be used as an excuse.
0: For what,
2: Justice? Doing wrong. My dad told me way back, there's no difference between a white snake and a black snake. They're both bite. And everyone knew, everyone in the political community, everyone in the academic community, everyone in the legal community knew that the Republican Party was pushing for Clarence Thomas. And, Clarence Thomas, you, you can't underestimate how much Clarence is the antithesis. Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was the leading advocate for dismantling apartheid. He worked with a group of lawyers, mostly Black, but a multiracial group of lawyers to create tools to dismantle apartheid in this country. Every one of those tools, every one of those tools, Clarence opposed. And I think it's important to recognize he didn't just oppose these kinds of things when he got on the Supreme Court. His record was well-known. So it's no surprise that he undermined the Voting Rights Act, right? It's no surprise that he did those kinds of things. Uh, but what's surprising is the politics that emerged in our community to support someone like that. And we've been paying for it for decades.
0: Yeah, I, re- I remember that so vividly. I remember a couple things. I remember uh, when Bush, this was the first president, Bush, invited African American leaders and civil rights folks to the White House, and uh, a lot of people were kind of saying, "Wow, they hadn't been in the White House for a long time, right?" They were like missing being there. And he asked them to, you know, just give Clarence Thomas a chance. And my understanding was that even though Clarence Thomas was the anti rights nominee, that somewhat as a courtesy, some of the leadership agreed to give him a chance, basically not to oppose the nomination until well into uh, the, the summer. And during that time, there was a counter Uh, effort on the part of the Republican Party to really build up the positives around uh, Clarence Thomas. So there were radio campaigns and organizations that sort of just uh, sprang up overnight, African-Americans for family values, which was not an African-American organization. All this stuff was happening, you know, while, you know, the civil rights groups were giving Clarence Thomas a chance. So by the time we got to the confirmation hearings, African-Americans were kind of split. It seemed as though maybe like 52% uh, were uh, supporting uh, Clarence Thomas. And there was still the debates too within the National Bar Association, which was a group of, is a group of African-American lawyers, the NAACP, people were kind of taking their time, but there was dissension in the ranks. So by this time, The civil rights groups had finally come out in opposition to Clarence Thomas, some of them on narrow votes, some of them not so much. Uh, The hearings had been going on for a bit, and then news broke. That there was an affidavit that the Judiciary Committee had suggesting that there was potentially a problem with the nomination, potentially an allegation of sexual harassment, and people were just stunned to hear this news. And I remember watching the television and seeing the accuser, as she was called, and it was Anita Hill. And I realized that it was someone, you know, I knew, which wasn't hard because there were a handful of African-American women who were law professors at the time. We met at a
3: conference, a a law school association conference. You know, in those
0: days where
3: there weren't many people who looked like us.
0: Maybe, maybe a dozen. (laughs) When I came and when you, when you started, there were fewer Maybe a half
3: dozen? Oh, even fewer. We we used to joke that you could have a luncheon of all the African-American or Black professors and you'd fit in like a small lunchroom. You could yeah. all sit around the same table, basically, so when we first started. So that's how we met. Yeah. And then we reconvened. <laughs> <laughs> that's the
0: way, that's the great way to put it. So when Anita Hill stepped into this space... Having been subpoenaed, I think that's another piece of the story that a lot of people don't know. She was literally you know, subpoenaed, forced to come and testify and and she did that as her duty under the subpoena. But it wasn't as though Anita Hill was jumping up and down saying, "You know, I've got something to say, I've got something to say in the way that she was portrayed. Um, but that comes a little later. I'm really curious about, so here you are, a Yale graduate, along with Clarence Thomas. You knew him as did many of the other Black folk in in your class. And a lot of this, to you, didn't come as a surprise. But what was it that made you come to Washington, D.C.? How did you hear, and and what did you think you were going to experience when you showed
2: up? Well, you know, I was a young professor then. I hadn't even started my first full-time job. And uh, Carlton had called me up. Um, and so he said, "Hey, look, you know, uh, they want me to come down, and it's, it's it's about Clarence Thomas, and there's this woman named uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, and, and what do you think?" And I said, "Well, you know, I, I've been reading her work; she's really good. I think we, I think we, I think we should get on a train and and go straight down there." Carlton was in the first year of his teaching in the political science department at at Columbia. And so, you know, we both thought that we'd be very junior members on a team that would be headed by the heads of the civil rights movement. So we came prepared to, to Xerox and to run small errands and sort of stepping onto the stage Uh, on the big stage for the first time wasn't something that we had anticipated. And it's not something that under normal circumstances they would have ever allowed, but no one was really, no one or it seemed like very few were willing to come and step forward and stand next to her. And I, I really wanted to be a part of working to support her, because I thought that she was putting forward ways in which African-American women have, have been abused over the centuries. And it, there seemed to be a disconnect between her story and the way the black community, you know, perceived it. Uh, so. I wanted to push back against all the support that he was getting and and the lack of support at the heart of of what was happening to her.
0: Did you believe Anita Hill?
2: Yeah, I believed her. If you had a sense of of who she was as a person, there was no reason uh not to think that she was speaking with integrity. Uh, you know, she didn't tell a story that was foreign to my ears about uh, clarence and porn. So when she said that, that just, that just rang a bell. It didn't—it was, it was consistent. What wasn't consistent were proclamations that I heard coming from him that he never did that, he would never do that. I knew that was a lie. The way in which she was stereotyped, the way in which she was viewed as a scorned woman, the way in which she was portrayed as a radical, was, it was just a dishonest portrayal of her. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights?
1: No, I don't have a militant attitude. Do you have a martyr complex?
2: So I wanted to be a part of filling the gap when it came to, look, let's paint a picture of who this woman really is and what she's confronting. But, you know, she was confronting a subset of problems that uh, African-American women have faced over the generations that have never been at the center of our racial justice movement. So there was a disconnect between what were common experiences for African-American women and the way in which all kinds of positive attributes were given to, to Clarence, even though his politics stood in abject rejection of the civil rights tradition. You know, you know, one thing I, I, I wanted to add here, Kim, is that I think some of the difficulty that she faced was really exacerbated by how long the uh, civil rights community put up a stance against this guy. I remember going to the the newsstand right here on, on uh, the Upper West Side and seeing Jet magazine painting a picture of him as, you know up from poverty, up from pinpoint, Georgia, and a hero, right? So she's coming into the scene at a time when a lot of the mass media has already characterized this guy as as some kind of a hero.
0: I remember being surprised when I saw the newspaper, from the Nation of Islam, basically celebrating Clarence Thomas. I remember reading articles saying that, you know, at last a dark-skinned African-American was going to be confirmed to the Supreme Court, and somehow that was an indicator of more progressive uh, politics. So it it seemed as though there was just a real challenge in being able to separate the identity of Clarence Thomas as a Black man from the politics. (laughs) So, Luca, I, I want to take you back to see if you can remember what happened when he first testified. Um, I remember when we were watching it, um, we thought, oh, it looks like he's going to step down. But then he, he kept going and said something that just blew my mind.
1: This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a Black American, as far as I'm concerned, It is a high-tech lynching for uppity Blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves.
0: And I thought, that's not going to work. You know, Black people know what is a lynching and what is not. Turned out I wasn't right about that. So what was your experience of hearing him testify and what he said?
2: His use of the lynching metaphor in combination with being able to benefit from the choke of the endangered Black man, elevated and captivated mesmerized a lot of Black Americans, as if this whole process was at the behest of a a Black woman to lynch a Black man. Now, that had never happened in the history of American society, but it made them blind to the politics that he was talking about. And he wasn't going to be held accountable uh, for that politics, but she was going to be held accountable for critiquing an African-American man.
0: So I I just remember Luke being kind of naive because when I heard it, I thought this is a desperation move. This is going to, you know, it's going to anger Black people more than it's going to engage them. So I just thought, you know, this is this is the beginning of the end. Nobody's going to believe this. But boy, was I wrong about that. (laughs) I mean, that moment you know cost his approval ratings in the black community to to skyrocket he went from like 52% to over 80% it's sort of like just throw down the lynching thing. Doesn't matter that it doesn't make any sense in this context, people are bound to believe it. And what then does Anita Hill have to say? What what kind of historical card can she play? What kind of, this is just like that, can she say? And there really wasn't anything. There wasn't anything that she had access to that did the work for her, that high-tech lynching did for Clarence Thomas. So that was kind of the opening moment where I thought, okay, we're we're in it. Are we gonna win it? Uh, not so sure. So one of the reasons that so few people actually did show up is that there was a fear of professional repercussions. People were nervous about coming out against the White House, the Republican Party, the establishment. Um, the, The fear was real and it was palpable. It was something that Anita and I talked about last year when we talked about some of the real risks that her supporters faced.
3: It was risky to be there. It was risky for you as a young professor. Keith Henderson lost a job because of his support for me. Paul, who testified, tenure was held up for a year. Charles Ogletree was concerned about his tenure. We didn't know, Gawky here, that it would be such a risk, but there was this risk.
1: Do you have anything to gain by coming here? Has anybody promised you anything by coming forth with this story now? I have nothing to gain. No one has promised me anything. This has been disruptive of my life, I've taken a number of personal risks. I've been threatened. I have not gained anything except knowing that I came forward and did uh, what I felt that I had an obligation to do, and that was to tell the truth.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, I don't know if you were aware of this, Luke, but one of the rituals of this debacle was that there was a constant platform for Thomas supporters to come out almost on an hourly basis with some new information about what was behind Anita Hill and, you know, what what the cabal was that was making this story up just to attack, you know, this black man.
2: I don't know whether you noticed, but I noticed that whole entourage, not her family, they look beautiful. They look like
1: wonderful people to me. Looked at her parents, they're clearly good people, clearly. Her sisters, clearly good people, but I saw the entourage come in, I'm not saying they did this, but you can bet your bottom dollar that every possible stereotype could be dug up.
0: I kind of realized how, what we were up against when one of them, I don't remember if it was Senator Danforth's office or one of the other senators that was cheerleading, came out and denounced critical legal studies for being wrapped up in this. So it told me that they were trying to get dirt on whoever was involved in this and tried to tell a story that links. Well, you know, if these people are in it, then you better believe that this is a lie and this is a concerted effort to bring a good man down. Now, fortunately, back then, it just didn't really stick. Things have changed a lot. But it does go to show how power was lining up and how and why some of these consequences to people who supported Anita Hill actually came about. So when when you thought about it, when you look back on it, do you remember any sense that there was some risk involved in publicly expressing support for Anita Hill? Well,
2: I I know that... uh... All the people that I called at Yale who knew Clarence weren't going to come out publicly, right? And I think it's for two reasons, right? One, which you carefully articulated coming from, you know, the right and the Republican Party. But, you know, this guy had massive support in African-American communities. And even some of the Southern senators that were open to voting against them said that, you know, they couldn't vote against them because they were getting call after call after call from their black constituents saying, if you do that, you won't get elected the next time. Right. So there was a dovetailing like we've never seen in America before between the people who were most desirous of pushing civil rights back and the candidate that the Black community supported. So there was pressure coming from all places. And, you know, I was stunned that uh, almost none of my colleagues at, at Yale Law School were willing to come out. They were so into the idea that he wouldn't be as bad as he is and that they could talk to him that they missed the opportunity to block what now has become, I think he's the most conservative member of a conservative Supreme Court.
0: And let's also remember that there was a conversation within the Black community that framed him as, you know, sort of the signifier, right? He's the person who's pretending um, to toe the line in order to get to the Supreme Court. But as soon as he gets confirmed, he'll show him that he's really, you know, on on, on the side of, of African Americans, on the side of civil rights. I remember. Even Maya Angelou wrote an op-ed that basically said, give him a chance. Let's give him a chance with, with the sense that we have to leave the, the porch light burning because, you know, he'll come home. It wasn't just about his coming home. It's about what damage He could do to civil rights, what damage he could do to the painstakingly built civil rights infrastructure that people lost their lives trying to build, how he could be that vote that took it apart, plank by plank. So he goes on to be the fifth vote that undermine things like eventually the Voting Rights Act, undermine things like campaign finance reform, undermine things like affirmative action. So it wasn't just the symbolic question of whether our arms will continue to be open to you. It's whether we were steeled up to prepare ourselves to address the onslaught, the counterattack to civil rights that his confirmation you know, brought about. Um, so that raises the question of the power imbalance that was going on with respect to who is seen as legitimate, who is seen as being someone whose veracity we can rely on, whose stories are believed and whose stories are not. And that is a sustaining part of the problem of sexual harassment in particular. When are women believed and what kind of behavior do they have to perform in order to be even modestly credible? And what men can do in the face of allegations that if women were to do it, they'd be written off immediately, but men can essentially lose their minds and still be seen (laughs) as credible. Their
3: rage signifies power. Their rage signifies that they're assertive, aggressive and righteous. Our rage signifies insanity, that we're off the rails That we have imploded. We're out of control and therefore we can't be trusted. There are so many ways that they have figured out to sort of culturally diminish us that you could just go down the line and have a whole book. What we've described is a process that was just chaotic. I mean, you said nobody was driving the the car. I think everybody was trying to drive the car (laughs) and they were all trying to drive it in different directions. No, let's go this way, no, you go that way. And, and, And that's what became the chaos The process mattered because of that moment. I was supposed to testify first. I was told that I would testify first. But somehow Clarence Thomas made a deal to testify first in part and maybe entirety, because he wanted to be on the screen during the time before people went to work. He wanted to be there in prime morning television so they would see him first. There was so much maneuvering, and I say that as I think about where we are now. We still, in these issues, whether it's sexual harassment or assault or discrimination, have this real power play going on. And we've got processes that disadvantage the people who are coming forward with claims of discrimination. Situations that seem to be set up always to favor the most powerful or who are attached to the most powerful people and what ends up is
0: people don't trust the system. Anita was so spot on there. First, you know, she was going to testify first, but then he decided to testify first and then we had to, you know, change everything. Anita's family uh, was in town and they were all over town because the assumption now was that they weren't going to have to come in until after Clarence Thomas testified. Well, he went in and, and and did this performance of righteous indignation. And then like, well, how can I testify? I don't know what the allegations against. It was just, it was a ruse. So all of a sudden, you know, they say, oh, well, Anita has to testify now. She has to testify now. Well, none of her family had arrived yet. So all of us who were in the back room who were part of the support team had to gather up really quickly and get ready to come into the room to occupy all of the seats that were behind her because it would have been, you know, it would have looked bad if all those seats remained empty. So it kind of reminded me of... You know Muhammad Ali would go into the ring, you know, surrounded by by people, and so I was there. My my friend and former law professor, uh, Tanya, was there, and we we walked in, you know, sort of with her, and I forgot to tell my mom that I was in Washington, DC, <laughs> right? She thought that I was still out in, in uh, Irvine. And apparently she and her class had been watching it. And when we marched in, somebody said, "Miss Crenshaw, isn't that your daughter? And she said she walked right up to the screen. And so I was like, Camberley! Um, You know, my mom was totally supportive of Anita Hill. And at the same time was fully aware that that this was a risky business. I remember having uh, one kind of offline behind the columns conversation with one of the women's rights leaders and I was just shocked, shocked that behind the scenes, as the committee members were on recess, how friendly they all were to each other. Like They would have just come in from basically trying to rip Anita Hill to shreds, with the Democrats basically sitting there effectively saying nothing. And then they get behind the scenes or backstage. And they're grinning and laughing and patting each other on the back. And she told me, you have to realize that this is a boys club. They might travel under, you know, different colors. One group calls themselves the Democrats and the other group calls themselves the Republicans. But at the end of the day, especially when it comes down to this issue, sexual harassment, they have much more in common. Then separates them, and it was an epiphany for me. And another moment came a few hours later when all of us were leaving the Capitol, and we ran into a group of Black people who had come to pray and to sing. And we decided, great, let's go over to you know our people.
2: Do you remember that? I remember that because it turned out to be decidedly not our people.
0: And many of them, I mean, we're we're basically talking about black women,
2: mm-hmm.
0: largely. Largely, um, they 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 were praying for God to come down and and save Clarence Thomas and and punish you know this Jezebel. There was almost no sense of recognition that her experience had anything to do with them. The, the, The solidarity was a solidarity that was almost exclusively with Clarence Thomas, as a Black man whose upward trajectory was being disappointed, not solidarity with a Black woman who had experienced sexual harassment, potentially like they had experienced it. It it, kind of reminded me a little bit of a movie that happened long after that, Get Out, right? You go to people who you think are similarly situated, and it turns out that they you know, are on the other side. So you go running from them and we jumped into a cab that was waiting and this guy had the radio on. All these people were calling in, threatening Anita Hill's life, basically saying she should be taken out and shot.
2: She was called the worst possible name.
0: All kinds of names, all kinds of names. It was, it was, uh, uh, there are ways that I've never recovered from that moment. How
2: about you? Well, you know, that's that's when I realized, you you know, loyalty in the Black community, it's it's a gendered highway. Clarence Thomas didn't have to demonstrate any loyalty to the values and the efforts of the civil rights movement. But Anita Hill, even in the face of sexual harassment, she was supposed to demonstrate loyalty by keeping her mouth shut and letting this brother serve on the Supreme Court. In my personal opinion, every Black man is on trial.
1: I think it's a bunch of lies. Because if she waited all this long, you know, it seems like a lie to me. I wouldn't even be surprised if someone paid her to make these accusations. Well, I figure that he's just a Black man trying to make it good. And now that he's up here, a lot of things from the past that may or may not have happened are coming out. And I don't think he's guilty
2: at all.
0: When we talked, I, I asked Anita how she dealt with the fact that a community that she was a part of abandoned her, um, allowed her to twist in the wind, and, and, you know, in some ways, I was traumatized by uh, observing it, right? I just saw it. I was just a witness to it. How she actually survived that, To, to tell her truth and to keep moving despite the backlash.
3: My parents were farmers. They were like in the middle of Oklahoma. They had not a clue about the Supreme Court hearings or law or, you know, they knew I was a law teacher, but most importantly, they just knew that I was their daughter and they trusted me. And they believed that whatever I was going to say was going to be truthful and it was going to be the right thing to do. And, you know, that's sort of this unconditional love and support that I had. Um, I have a cousin who's now in her nineties and she called my mom and she was talking to my mom on the phone. And she said, let me speak to her. And she was a member of this church down in Houston, Texas. And it was, you know, it was a black church in the hood. And she said, I don't want you to worry about a thing because we have a prayer chain
0: mm-hmm.
3: around you. And then there was a church in Chicago. The pastor wrote me and he said, Our church is lifting you up in prayer every Sunday. So I had that. I knew it wasn't universal, but I didn't need it to be universal. I knew looking ahead that we would in some ways come to understand how if 50 something percent of our community cannot be free, can be abused by whomever, then the community can't thrive. And and I think we're coming to understand that.
2: I mean, she had to be extraordinarily strong. I mean, what happened to her could have crushed uh, any number of people. You, You know, this was the first time I'd ever seen anything like this, but it kind of gave me insight into things that I would see later on. Five years later, four years later, when we were constructively critiquing the Million Man March. I heard Angela Davis say, not saying that there shouldn't be a march, but that the concerns of women and girls ought to be at the center as well. It was the first time that she'd ever gone around the country since she became famous, where she was booed, right? She was booed for the radical position that we include. Not that you marginalize, not that you trivialize men and boys, but that you center the concerns of all of us.
0: And, look, you've been honest and self-reflective in talking about your journey from having a politics that centered not the women in your lives that raised you, that sacrificed for you, but instead the politics of men in your life, some of whom were never there. So when you think back on your journey, what were some of the moments that you now think I was heading in exactly the direction of all these people who flocked around Clarence Thomas. And I got diverted into this other direction. And that's how I wound up knocking on that door, you know, the day that we asked for Black men to show up.
2: It's an underestimation to say that I was headed in that direction. I think I was there. When I read For the first time, the ideas associated uh, with an intersectional perspective, it gave me a new way of looking at the world. I remember once, you know, we shared stories about our family backgrounds, and I learned a lot about yours. You learned a lot about me. And and I remember you said, well, you know, Luke, you said you were raised by a a great aunt, was a domestic for half a century, left school at the age of 15. In fifth grade, uh, she'd been a sharecropper. Your mother had a problem with serious drug addiction uh, and had to abandon all the children in your family. And then you asked me, I mean, this, this was a big moment for me. You asked me, you said, "So where are they in your politics?" And I looked hard and, and I couldn't find them. And that really made me rethink how I think about questions of racial justice, because at the time, I thought I had a progressive, you know sense of what racial justice meant, but it was wrapped around men, and it wasn't wrapped around even the people that had brought me into this world and raised me.
0: And some part of it, of course, was the fact that our own anti-racist history has not been an inclusive history. We haven't told the stories about how Black women have been agents of change. We haven't told the stories about how anti-Black racism shaped our lives. So when so many African-Americans tried to repudiate Anita Hill, including uh, one of our colleagues, Orlando Patterson, who basically said that even if Clarence Thomas did many of the things and said many of the things that Anita Hill said he did, that she was still effectively lying by feigning offense or discomfort with this what he called down-home courting, which basically amounted to a a cultural defense against sexual harassment, an an idea that Black women know how to handle this kind of thing. Black women aren't uh, damaged by this. They know how to put a brother in his place. Not taking into account whatever you might feel comfortable doing in social space is definitely not what you can do in work with someone who is your boss. So, so much of that was a failure to recognize that sexual harassment is a condition of Black women's lives since we arrived on these shores. It's a condition that plays out irrespective of who the man is who's harassing us. Yes, white men have long been harassers of Black women, but so have Black men and other men of color. The point is, Sexual harassment is something that all women experience and black women especially experience it sometimes based on the stereotypes that we can take it. So when we looked at that and just saw how much we were losing because the history of say Rosa Parks, who got her start in politics by defending a black woman, Reese Taylor, who was raped by white men, and those white men were never brought to justice. When we don't tell the story of how someone like Rosa Parks came to be Rosa Parks, and we just tell a story about her stepping into history by refusing to give up her seat, we've lost a tremendous part of what our history of anti-racist struggle has been. Honestly, I
3: do what I do in part. Because I hear over and over again from young women in particular, like, oh, I can't complain about the person who's abusing me because he's a member of my community. But I think back, you know, look at all those early cases where many of those Black women who stepped forward had to step forward against the supervisor who was Black, if you look at the the Merit or Savings Bank case, the first Supreme Court case that finally gave us some relief from, from this problem. It was a young Black woman and a Black male supervisor. It is hard to do that, but none of us should have to deny ourselves and our own safety and basic humanity and dignity for our ability to speak the truth about our experiences.
0: When you explain to people why you're a black male feminist. Does the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas moment in history figure into your self-understanding?
2: Yeah, it's at the core of my understanding, Uh, because even when I thought about it in the past, I think I thought about it in one-on-one terms. I hadn't thought about how collectively we could make a decision, support someone that would rally against uh, the collective interests of our community for generations. And it's no exaggeration to say that, you know, you and I were sitting on the steps of the Supreme Court after this was all over, and we could see, and we could say to each other that, you know, this is going to come back to haunt the black community time in and time again. And we haven't really, I think, fully learned from that experience to this day.
0: What, what do you think is the evidence that we haven't learned the story?
2: I think the evidence of that, the first evidence of that, I saw with respect to the Million Man March headed by Louis Farrakhan and then an African-American man with a very different politics President Barack Obama's um, My Brother's Keepers program. You know, both of those initiatives, although well-meaning, entirely circumscribed, I would argue, trivialize the experiences of African-American women and girls. And so this is a problem that can be handed from one generation to the next, and unless it's pushed back against by an ideology, it's going to win the day. So we were looking at that as we were sitting across from the Capitol,
0: on the day, at the hour, that Clarence Thomas was narrowly confirmed. And it was narrow up into the very last hour, despite the fact that the Republicans and the White House were saying he had it in the bag. We had reason to know, because we'd been in the senator's office, along with Jesse Jackson. We knew the ones that were still struggling, trying to figure out if they were going to confirm or not. And as we were sitting there, we we made a commitment. What can you recall <laughs> about our conversation then?
2: I think we both made a commitment to push back against a politics that doesn't take into account all of the differences that matter. What does it mean to have a, a truly inclusive vision of racial justice? The fact of the matter is that, you know, if you don't see those concerns through a feminist perspective, you've got a truncated, bastardized conception of racial justice and that's not just as a matter of theory, that's going to affect the work that you do. So you're not going to uh, be able to build all the bridges to freedom and access and what genuine you know, equity looks like even across your own community. And uh, I think, unfortunately, Uh, One of the most vivid illustrations of that in American history is the Black community support of Clarence Thomas.
0: Yeah. And gender and patriarchy becomes the Achilles heel, right? Because this is what made it impossible for African-American communities and civil rights communities and other racial justice communities to actually come together to defend a, a vision. Instead, we fell apart over defending a man.
2: I think it's the most self-destructive thing that collectively the Black community has ever done to itself because he still only won by, what, was it, two votes? Mm-hmm. Right, so we know if we had, you know, if if the civil rights community had picked up on what the leading figure of his generation, Thurgood Marshall, had said, we could have won this, right? You know, Ever since the late 1960s, you, you, know, you see this pushback against racial justice, and part of that pushback is you kill the leaders of it, right? So Martin Luther King is assassinated, all right? So you kill the leaders, but then you kill the vision. How do you kill the vision of the civil rights movement on the Supreme Court? You take the person who was identified with being a pioneer when it comes to pushing back against apartheid and replace him with someone that thinks that you shouldn't focus on race in order to deal with racial problems.
0: You know, I said that we were going to talk about the connections between that moment 30 years ago and another anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the African American Policy Forum. So as we close out, what way do you think our birth was connected to our experience at the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings?
2: I think that was a a huge generating factor. That was was the birthplace of an understanding that we really needed organizations in American society to center a gendered feminist perspective that was wrapped around the lives of all of us. And we're doing that not just because it's the right thing to do and it's moral. Uh, we're doing that because there are collective and individual great harms that come from not having that politics. If you don't have that politics, there's a huge costs. Uh, to communities of color and to American society writ large. We're never going to have a fully democratic American society until we have a fully racially integrated society. And we're never going to have a vision of racial justice that comports with our ideals if we don't have a vision of racial justice that isn't wrapped around all of us in our communities.
0: Well, thank you, Luke, for being my co-host on this special anniversary show. It's been great to have you on with me.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I feel like I'm getting to know you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's about time. Intersectionality Matters is produced and edited by Julia Sharp Levine. This episode was co-produced by Ashley Julian, with support provided by Destiny Spruill, Rebecca Schekman, and the African American Policy Forum. You can support us by subscribing and leaving a review, following us on social media, and joining our Patreon page for bonus episodes and exclusive content. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters.